Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. One of the greatest early conservationists in America was a Scottish immigrant named John Muir. As a young boy, John Muir came first to Wisconsin, and then later as a young man in the 1860s, he moved onward to California. A friend of President Theodore Roosevelt, he successfully sought to preserve the spectacular Yosemite Valley and the Sierra Nevada Range. It was a joy to him in his lifetime. Yet the loss of the equally spectacular Hetch Hetchy Valley to a dam to provide water to the city of San Francisco was his greatest sorrow. John Muir founded the Sierra Club and has been credited with founding the national park system in the United States. I visited with John Muir through the person of Lee Stetson in the studios of Radio Curious in October of 1995 and discussed his life and observations. We began with his comments on the effect that the extinction of so many species during and since his lifetime has had on the Earth's remaining species. Well, in my lifetime, I, I remember as a boy in the wilderness of Wisconsin, uh, seeing the flocks of passenger pigeons in waves of millions, like winds moving through the sky, uh, moving from horizon through horizon all day long at the rate of 40 or 50 miles an hour, like a mighty river in the sky, widening and contracting and descending like falls and cataracts and then rising suddenly in great jagged masses like high splashing spray. Well, unfortunately, every shotgun was aimed at them, and uh, so thick were these pigeons in the sky that a single shotgun blast could bring down a thousand or more, a hundred or more, at a single blast. And so everybody feasted on pigeon pies. And in my wife, one in my one lifetime, that great river in the sky trickled down to Martha, a passenger pigeon held captive, the last female, presumably the last pigeon on the planet. It saddened me to see that over the course of my lifetime, and it was repeated with many other species. Uh, the loss of the buffalo, the loss of the grizzly bear in California, with whom I had some face-to-face -face encounter, uh, the loss of the Yosemite sheep. Uh, the, the list goes on and on of, of species that were destroyed, or rapidly disappearing, and was in fact the reason why I, I spent so much of my long lifetime uh, encouraging people to set aside wild lands so that these creatures could survive. And the reason that they should survive is, is not, uh, we understand that race lives on race. That, uh, that one species is a predator to another. Absolutely, and, and the loss of the grizzly bear was certainly an example of that. Uh, but, you know, is it necessary when wheat and apples grow and the shops are full of dead cows? The truth is that we have ample ways of, of sustaining and nourishing our bodies these days without the destruction, uh, both deliberate and just the wanton thrill destruction of so many of our species. And it's necessary not only for reasons of biodiversity, as we call them nowadays, uh, but for reasons of uh, the human psyche. We need things to measure our own lives by, and we need places of solitude and, and uh, contentment where we can find rest and, and uh, beauty, 
uh, and these places are the very places where these animals should survive. Tell me about your thoughts on using the animals or the other species on our Earth uh, as a measure for our own lives. <laughs> well, use is, in fact, the, the... Maybe that's the wrong uh, verb. It, it certainly is the wrong word, in my view. I mean, Benchmark. Uh, a benchmark is far more appropriate, perhaps, because use is precisely what uh, humans have always uh, tried to apply to the animal kingdom. And, and it, it, that they are here only for our use has been the argument that we've used for low these many centuries. Uh, so the, the tusk of the elephant is used alone for us. For us, the rest of the carcass can be disposed of. Uh, uh, we use them for ornament, for work, for play, for mere sportish amusement. Uh, all of these uses uh, are far from what the animal himself, of course, has in mind. Uh, the truth is uh, that the animal has a right to exist on his own terms. And when creation uh, got around to making mankind, it was after many millennia of producing many other creatures that enjoyed many happy days upon this planet before we appeared to claim them. Uh, so the, 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 uh, the difficulty is not with extinction. We know that extinction does occur. Uh, the difficulty is that, that extinction is happening so rapidly with so many ways of uh, producing that, that loss of life. Uh, as we destroy habitats in particular. So when we have our species that has the uh, manual dexterity and the intellectual ability to create a system so that we can eat the pigeons or eat the buffaloes or, uh, as happened, shoot them for sport, um, is that not just our species living itself out? Or do you see it as a conscious disregard of other species? I think it's a conscious disregard, uh, or an unconscious disregard, perhaps, of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of the worth of these creatures. Uh, they're made of the same dust as we. Uh, they drink the same winds, they breathe the same waters, they, uh, they, uh, their life burns and ebbs with heart pulsings very much the same as ours, many of them. And uh, they are earth-born companions and are fellow mortals. And it's hard to believe that creation would spend uh, all of its efforts to create all of this with a view to have one species eliminate it all for the purposes of use in particular. Mm -hmm. it, it is a... And the worst of it, of course, is nowadays we are destroying those very uh, places that are most productive of continued creativity on the part of the planet. Uh, where do we suppose that continued evolution is going to occur? In the swamps, in the rainforests, in the in the, uh, the the all of those icky, murky places in which uh, evolutionary a change takes place, and those are the very habitats that we're so rapidly dismantling. We're told that the rainforests in in Costa Rica, uh, for instance, have the greatest range of biodiversity of any area on Earth. Mm -hmm. in terms of, of the most flora and fauna living together and evolving. Right, and it's one of the most threatened of the, the uh, areas on our planet, as is all rainforest everywhere. Uh, and again, the, 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 the halting of the process of creativity on the part of the planet is what's so frightening to behold, I think. Well, John, when you came to California, um, what, what year was that when you first came here? I came in 1868 when I was 30 years of age. 
And you spent most of your adult life uh, in and around the Sierra Nevada mountains. Well, I spent a great deal of it there, especially in those early years when I fell so much in love with glaciers, uh, the study of glaciers and, and the big trees and the Sierra Nevada in general, which had not been terribly well explored. Can you tell us some of what you saw then uh, when you were 30 years old that's not here now? Well, uh, well, for example, when I arrived in San Francisco, having um, um, aborted a trip to South America, I took a, a, a ship down to Panama on the East Coast and walked across the isthmus of the Panama, for we didn't have the canal in those days, and then up to San Francisco, where I asked the first person I met to point out the wildest place he knew. He pointed in the general direction of Yosemite, and I walked up there. But that walk is perhaps... Um, uh, one of the uh, the telling characteristics between yesterday and today. Tell when, us. When I took that walk... Now, this was, is the walk from uh, Oakland. From uh, Well, or, essentially from the Pacheco Pass. Uh, okay. Walking down to the Pacheco Pass and then across. My first view of the Sierra Nevada, the range of light, as I called it, mm -hmm. uh, was that incredible view from Pacheco Pass and in Pacheco an atmosphere that was entirely clear with the mountains simply soaring into the heavens, looking almost touchable. The Pacheco Pass is south of the south end of the San Francisco Bay, about 30 miles on south from um, San Jose. That's right. And, and it goes east over into the Central Valley mm -hmm. at about the same level, north-south level of the state as Yosemite. That's right. And the Central Valley itself, uh, which today is a very tedious place to go playing around in and a toxic swamp in some areas, uh, but it is essentially uh, uh, broken farms and asphalt, of course, highways everywhere. In my day, it was simply a carpet of wildflowers. And I could walk in April of 1868 from San Francisco uh, without uh, in, uh, really incurring any discomforts whatsoever. Uh, the land of the Central Valley was essentially wetlands. Elk abounded. All kinds of animals. Uh, grizzlies still roamed in the Central Valley in 1868, although they were diminishing, to be sure. Uh, it was a it was a land of such plenty and of such natural beauty and and such sustainability that I was astonished to see in my lifetime uh, the loss of so much of it uh, to um, uh, to a different kind of mindset. When you last traveled through the Central Valley, that was after automobiles? Yes. Or trains? Uh, yes, indeed. My last trip to Yosemite in 1912 uh, was partially accomplished by automobiles. So I went through the Central Valley by automobile from Martinez, California, in the Bay Area. And that was part of your quest with President Theodore Roosevelt to make Yosemite a national park? Well, one of those journeys certainly was. Uh, when Teddy became president, uh, he had never been to the West, and he had some serious questions to address, particularly the disposal of the Western forests and how they might be best taken care of. And so, since I had written often and, and rather passionately upon the subject, uh, the president wrote me a letter when he became president uh, and asked me if I would join him for four days in the wilderness alone, uh, to just talk over the forest and perhaps do it some good. And you uh, did. We did indeed. Uh, we arrived, he arrived and I arrived independently in Wawona uh, and uh, spent uh, four days, three nights uh, on horseback 
uh, going from one campsite to another. We did have two rangers accompanying us coming up behind with um, food stuff and, and uh, uh, to help build our dinners and, and our beds. Mm -hmm. uh, but essentially, um, uh, it was just the President of the United States and this one citizen uh, talking over the, the, uh, the problems that the forest was then encountering. What were those problems? Oh, well, they were tremendous in number, of course, and, st and remain to be <laughs> for the, for, in large measure. Uh, but uh, we were uh, not only rapidly losing land to indiscriminate timber use, uh, but mining industries and uh, the sheep herders, the cattle people, everyone who wanted to extract some good out of the wilderness in one way or another, good meaning in that sense, uh, some financial worth, essentially. Uh, we're busily chopping at the forest without any uh, any real vision of how to preserve it, how to l allow it to become sustainable. And the president, uh, uh, fortunately, uh, understood those problems. He himself was uh, hardly adult. I mean, he was one of the uh, certainly one of the few geniuses that ever occupied the White House. At the end of his term. He had set aside more than 200 million acres of land for protection. He created five national parks. He created 65 wildlife refuges, uh, which in, in relation to the number of animals he killed in his lifetime was probably not a bad mm -hmm. swap. Mm -hmm. And he also uh, created a number of monuments, including the Grand Canyon and Lassen, which have since become national parks. A good man for the wilderness. The issues of extracting the financial worth from the wilderness, uh, as you see them now in the living spirit of John Muir, compared to as you saw them during your lifetime, um, is there a difference? Well, as alarmed as I was in my lifetime, uh, the alarm levels have gone up so dramatically in this lifetime that it's uh, it's very hard to to even measure. In my lifetime, I, I actually wrote uh, that I did not believe that the atmosphere could be sufficiently polluted by man. It simply seemed too vast. I knew that uh, cities were an unhealthy place; that the immediate atmosphere would be um, a, a disagreeable thing, but that we could actually threaten the entire atmosphere with ozone depletion or with acid rain, a nuclear rain, uh, but it was simply beyond my ken. I also thought that the oceans uh, could not be sufficiently depleted of fisheries or that they could be sufficiently threatened by the activities of man. They simply seemed too vast. I, I, I also thought that the interior of Alaska was pretty well uh, protected from man's uh, manipulation simply because the forest there was so incredibly endless. Well, we now know, of course, that there's no square inch of this good planet that we cannot threaten and are not in the business of polluting or destroying or, or ripping out of its, its, its will to be a, a natural process. Uh, that's an enormous change, and it's a change that would be... Um, uh, it is simply disagreeable in all ways, and we need a, a marked change in consciousness among human beings uh, to halt and to to cut back on our, our more nefarious activities. I want to take a moment and say that uh, my guest this week is naturalist John Muir, and we're listening to Radio Curious. My name is Barry Vogel. John, how do we bring about the rise in that consciousness 
to halt this nefarious destruction, as you call it? Well, I, I suspect that the, uh, the, the true answer to that, of course, still lies in the education of the youth. Uh, more than any other thing that, uh, it is, uh, that we can leave as a legacy in our own lifetime, a legacy um, uh, that is absolutely necessary, is to, to support the education of young people so that they can make a better uh, series of decisions between biology on the one hand and economics on the other. Uh, decisions that we've made very poorly in the past. It's also true that one of the reasons I could not have foreseen uh, the tremendous problems affecting the planet nowadays is because of the population explosion. It is an issue that uh, is very sensitive, of course, to approach. It was in my day, but it's infinitely more uh, unapproachable nowadays for cultural, economic, religious reasons. Uh, it goes on and on as to why we can hardly approach the subject. But the fact is that the, the consumption uh, by so many billions of people increasing rapidly of our natural resources uh, is not a sustainable idea. And we desperately need, I think, to, to stabilize at the very least, to reduce at the very best the current population. John, in terms of, of the political profile that we have now in the United States with let's cut government spending, let's allow more individuality uh, so that people can do what they want, uh, let's use our resources for the benefit of us now here today, how do we address the, that political profile with the concept that you're telling us of uh, let's cut consumption, preserve our resources for the protection of our species and all the other species? Mm. Well, those who would believe that we could continue the current course simply have not looked at the true economics, the true value of, of that which we are currently destroying to sustain this lifetime. Part of our, our problem, obviously, is that we, we constantly need to accomplish in this one lone lifetime uh, uh, things that the planet is not able to sustain for us. It's true that the planet probably in the long run does not care. The fact is that the planet has suffered uh, volcanic activity, floods. Uh, uh, it has been destroyed time and time again by meteorites or, uh, or great earthquakes. Uh, the fact is the planet will shake us off like a bad rash and will continue about its business of evolving lifetimes, uh, life forms, and, and perhaps one more intelligent than the current one at the top of the heap, namely us. But it does seem to me uh, that even if that is true, that is simply a shame, a shame that, that human beings so bright, so capable, so, so endlessly uh, inventive cannot find a way to allow the planet to do that which the planet would very happily do for us, sustain us, nourish us. And when we flip riverbeds around, it's more like, uh, oh, heart surgery, uh, what is the ex uh, expression nowadays for flipping veins around. The bypass? The bypass. It's, it's like bypass that, that will allow this lifetime uh, perhaps a small degree of uh, continuance, uh, but for future lifetimes that is not sustainable for that area. I, I, I am hopeful in some ways. There is obviously the truth that most people on the planet, or I should say most people in the United States today, ten years ago never thought of, of recycling a thing. 
nowadays nearly everybody I meet uh, in this spirit form uh, is recycling. That is a mindset change that is significant. And, and it seems to me that what we need is incremental mindset changes that allows us to, to understand the planet as a living creature, uh, willing to support us, willing to support every other critter on the planet. Uh, but we need uh, a, a great deal of education, mm -hmm. and that's what we should throw our resources at now. We must make our children understand. Uh, one of the uh, characteristics of modern society is the tremendous waste uh, that goes into the, the prepackaging and the disposal mm. of, Absolutely. Uh, of all that we consume. John Muir, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. But before you go, I want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests at the end of an interview, which is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? <laughs> um, well, uh, one book is 60 Miles from Contentment by a, uh, a, a female author named Dunlop, uh, a magnificent study of the travels of, of early Americans in the 18th century, 19th century, uh, uh, traveling through the interior of what was then the American West. Most of that simply uh, uh, on the borders of the Mississippi River on both sides as opposed to the Far West, although the Far West is sometimes included. But it's a, a magnificent study of uh, the trials and tribulations of early travelers in the United States. And it was, uh, it's one of the most detailed, uh, creative looks at uh, just what people go through or did go through in those days. Well, John Muir, I want to thank you very much for joining us and welcome Lee Stetson to Radio Curious. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. How is it that you uh, chose to be John Muir? <laughs> well, How does this in some fit ways, into I, your life? I suspect that uh, John sort of chose me. I, I, I had worked uh, in the theater. Uh, for many, many years um, in, in very beautiful places, happily. I, I began my theatrical career in graduate school at the University of Hawaii. And I lived for several years in Hawaii and had a theater company there, which still flourishes, actually, without me. But I finally convinced myself that fame and fortune really only uh, dwelt in uh, Los Angeles. And so I moved to L.A. and had a very happy, unhappy series of years there. Uh, when was this? What oh, period this would of be years? in the, in the uh, late 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, and for about five years, I pounded pavements and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and worked uh, sporadically directing, mm -hmm. writing, and acting in Los Angeles. But to escape L.A., uh, which I felt increasingly needful of doing. I, I understand I, that. I often went to uh, the Southern Sierra, and a friend of mine, uh, to simply play in the wilderness, and a friend of mine, knowing that I was doing that, sent me a biography of Muir uh, as a Christmas gift. I was immediately astonished by his accomplishments, obviously the father of national parks, mm -hmm. the creator of the Sierra Club, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, and its first president, uh, and by the astonishing adventures. Uh, last year I, I produced a book that uh, is called The Wild Muir, uh, that involves 22 separate occasions in which Muir probably should have lost life or limb. And uh, these, of course, are part of the, um, uh, the many uh, stories that I tell uh, when I do the character of Muir in my, right. in my productions. Uh, but, uh, but I was mostly astonished by uh, both the timeliness of his message and the poetry of his words. 
and that's what really captivated me and, and dragged me into investigating Muir. In the process of doing that, I wound up in Yosemite Valley, where Muir had lived for many years, uh, where I'd never been before. Uh, I arrived in Yosemite on an April night uh, back in 1982 uh, and uh, determined to do some hands-on research. And arrived there one night on a full moon and found a trail that took me up to a place called Columbia Point to overlook the valley. And the first time I saw Yosemite Valley was by moonlight in this lifetime. Must have uh, been marvelous. It, well, it was convincing. <laughs> and I immediately um, went down and managed to get a job with the um, uh, concessionaire in the park as a front desk clerk for seven months while I did the research. Uh, they had a fine mm -hmm. research library there. And, and finally uh, came up with the first script uh, that uh, mm -hmm. I now do is evening productions in the valley. And the kind of evening presentations that you make, uh, mm. uh, then as in our interview, you are John Muir. Uh, I am, but it's very much more of a scripted production than uh, than what I uh, had just done. In terms of a monologue, where you yes, it's make a, a presentation. it's essentially a one-person show, but dealing with uh, different themes. Mm -hmm. uh, in one case, the land ethic of the loss of the Hetch Hetchy Valley, the most uh, bitter battle that Muir had, and the, remember the Alamo of the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Stikine and other fellow mortals deals with the animal kingdom and with themes of extinction and, and uh, animal rights. And then the spirit of John Muir, which is mm -hmm. uh, uh, a series of adventure stories, really, that just tends to um, indicate the health and invigoration one acquires by fully engaging wildness, as Muir did. The Hetch Hetchy story is a that supplies does it not the water to the city of San Francisco? It, it supplies water to a, vari a variety of communities, including San Francisco and the peninsula. And the reason that the Hetch Hetchy has not yet been uh, unplugged, which is a theme that I keep pounding at uh, both in my show and in person, it is the only community, San Francisco, uh, that is able to abuse our national park uh, by reason of legislation created those many years ago. The fact is that the water could in the old days and could still be stored downstream. There, there's no... Mm -hmm. uh, San Francisco, whenever we uh, broach the idea of, of um, unplugging the Hetch Hetchy and returning it to a wild state, uh, they, they uh, often uh, complain that they're going to lose their water. Yeah. In fact, you cannot lose water, it simply goes downhill. What they would lose is the electrical power that they generate off the dam and make a great deal of money from. And the Hetch Hetchy Valley is similar in uh, view uh, to the Yosemite Valley, is it not? It looks very nearly identical to the untrained eye, someone who wouldn't know Yosemite in detail. Well, Lee, we, we're running out of time, uh, but I want to ask you the same question I just asked John. Could you tell us about an interesting book? <laughs> that you've read lately, or perhaps is it uh, The Wild Muir that you wrote? Well, certainly I, I wouldn't mind promoting that book. It, it's uh, produced by the Yosemite Association, and so some of it, the monies that are created from it goes back and supports the park. Uh, but it is, a, um, it is essentially a, a, an adventure biography. Uh, Muir had these 22 separate occasions in which he probably should have lost his life. And it's an astonishing series of... Um, uh, putting himself out there, that, uh, and it's done chronologically with a little introduction. And the, the title is? The Wild Muir. By Lee Stetson. By Lee Stetson. Well, Lee, thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. My real pleasure, Barry. John Muir has been brought to us through the person of Lee Stetson. 
In January of 2003, Lee Stetson took office as a member of the Mariposa County Board of Supervisors in the western foothills of the Sierra Nevada in California. The book that John Muir recommended is 60 Miles to Contentment by M.H. Dunlop. The book that Lee Stetson recommends is The Wild Muir by Lee Stetson. This interview was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on October 20th, 1995. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.